0: Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, and today I'm answering your questions. Anytime you submit questions on my social media, they could end up on this podcast. Let's dive into today's question. Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode, and today is special because this Q&A is going to be rapid fire. This is part four of School is in Session, just trying to get you prepped and ready for the academic year. Today, I have Ashley Barlow with me. So she did a previous episode amazing all about educational rights, IEP. So go give that a listen. It just recently replayed. But Ashley is a special education attorney, and she also has her own company, Ashley Barlow. And, co and loves being able just to educate, but I'm so excited to be able to do this. So if you guys are watching live in the above Facebook community, you are welcome to drop questions and we will do our best to get to those. I do have a bunch of questions we are going to go through today. If you are Listening to this on the podcast, we are actually streaming live in the Evolve Facebook community, and you can join that yourself by going to the show notes and you will be welcome. It's a space for you to be able to ask questions. We talk about the podcast episodes and just be able to get support that you need as a parent of an autistic kiddo, or if you have concerns about autism. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's always fun to chat with you, and I'm excited about this schoolism session topic. Yeah, it got inspired on a whim,
0: and as and I DM'd you, and I'm like, hey, here's what's going on. Any chance you can wing this? And I was ready for you to say no, and I would have figured it out, but I'm so grateful that we were able to find a time to get this scheduled. I'm better at winging
1: it, honestly, than I am at anything else. I get that.
0: All right. So what we're going to do, this is going to be a little bit more rapid fire. If you are listening to the pod, I'm going to read the question. Ashley's going to answer it. Of course, I can't help but chime in. So you'll hear me chime in, but we're going to try to get through as many questions as we can on this episode. So the first one I wanted to start out with, I hear this all the time as a psychologist. So this was actually a question submitted via Instagram DMs and chatting with this mom. The child does have a clinical diagnosis of autism. The mom also indicated, which I thought this was surprising, that dyslexia had been identified. But either way, and I think this is a broad question of like, okay, my autistic child who has this clinical diagnosis, I'm just being told they need a 504. So what is often your insight into that? And then the part two of this, just through this conversation of this mom and I talking about this mom did identify a lot of social emotional needs and being able to
1: support that. And how does that come in to an IEP? Okay. The test for an IEP is twofold. It is disability and you have to meet the educational definition of the disability, which you should have eligibility forms on your state's department of ed website. So you can n- normally just Google like your state's name and then special education eligibility form. And then the second component is it has to have an adverse educational impact. Now, that does not just mean academics. It can mean social emotional health. It can mean your behavioral health. It can mean, in many cases, things that we as parents consider to be therapeutic, like an OT need or a speech need or something like that. Some of those are not standalone, meaning in order to have an OT, goal or an OT, like IEP, so to speak, you have to have something else also, and that would be governed by your state regulations probably. So you have to meet the diagnosis definition for your state, and you have to have that adverse educational impact. I think that you can absolutely make the argument that it's a social-emotional Need And that might come through as pragmatic speech, it might be a behavior thing, it might be a social-emotional regulation thing, like you might qualify in that disability category. So really, I think that question is mainly IEP eligibility based. But to address the 504 component, really the answer to that lies in the difference between IEPs and 504s. So the big difference there, I just did this with my son yesterday who was like, what's that one, two, three thing. And I was like, oh, you mean 504, (laughs) which I really liked. But a 504 does not give you the specially designed instruction that should be uniquely tailored to your child's individual needs that you get in an IEP. So in the IEP, you get supports for your child's needs academically and functionally. And you get that specially designed instruction. And a 504, what you get is simply accommodations. And basically 504 is a discrimination law. The law prohibits discrimination against people on the basis of their disability. The easiest one, the easiest example I give often is diabetes. So if you have a medical condition of diabetes, and your school says no food at school, period, that's the end of the story. Well, of course, if you have diabetes, that would discriminate against you because if your blood sugar's low, you need Skittles or sugar, something. And so you can have that. A lot of kids with autism have sleep disorders. And so maybe they can't fall asleep during school because it impacts something else. So you're allowed to have coffee at school. You have ADHD, you're allowed to have extra time because you might get distracted during a test or a scribe or a reader, or there's thousands of accommodations that we could have. So this concept
0: though, I hear this a lot for, I would say, autistic kids who have maybe average to above average IQs. They're getting good grades that the school is telling them, no, they only qualify for a 504. And sometimes they're not even allowing parents to have, like they're telling them, no, we don't need to evaluate for an IEP. So that's one piece I'd love to hear you talk about. But two, would you recommend that parents of autistic kids, just by definition of what autism looks like, really trying to push for
1: that IEP? Yeah. I mean, I think that having the specially designed instruction super duper helps. And IEPs, fact, IEPs are not only for the purpose of addressing academic deficits. So I think that's your main argument. that the IEP he is not only intended to address academics. And yes, fine, great grades. That's exciting. But what are the other components to the school experience, high school, grade school, middle school experience, as well as our transition needs, our future planning? That are being impacted. So you're going to talk about that pragmatic speech. You're going to talk about the sensory profile. You're going to talk about their functional skills, their activities, of daily living, their independent living skills. You're going to talk about those things. Look at your evaluations, even if you have to get them from outside sources and see where the deficits are and then put that into the context of real life. So What I recommend that parents do is that they outline this stuff before the meetings and maybe even communicate before the meeting. Yes, we agree. We've got straight A's in physics and an AP, whatever, (laughs) but our, here are our goals for our child. Here's where we see our child functioning in the real life. And when I talk about future life, I talk about, I have a list of five. Let's see if I, I. Rarely can do it by memory quickly, but their academic needs, their medical and health needs, their social emotional needs, their independent living needs and their employment. Oh, and transportation. I must have done broken two apart. And so can they access those things? Think about how much executive functioning it takes in order to access transportation, to figure out the rules of the road or the bus schedule, whatever, and then come back and see if you can tie that into functional goals for school. Yeah. Does that help? Absolutely. Yeah. And
0: I mean, I will say as a psychologist working with autistic children and their families, I'm almost always like, nope. Let, let's push for the IEP. And yeah. just just so parents hear this. So if a parent has a right to ask for their child to be evaluated for an IEP, correct?
1: Yeah. So yes, if you would like an IEP, you must request it in writing under the federal law and your state law might have additional requirements, but you address it, you ask for it in writing, and then the school has to do an evaluation in a certain timeline. The parents have to be a part of the evaluation planning meeting. And so it's really important in the evaluation process that you're asking for the right things that are going to tie into those, in this case, functional and social emotional skills. So really make sure that you're getting that transition-based evaluation, that you're getting the OT stuff and not just fine motor, like OTs always want to just do fine motor. Let's look at pragmatics. Let's look at our functional skills, our independent living skills, all those skills. Let's get a good speech evaluation, not just expressive and receptive speech. Again, let's look at that social emotional component to speech. Pragmatic speech is something nobody ever wants to talk about. And then let's get really good behavior profiles. Really look at that and make sure that they look at executive functioning too. And again, not just a brief, like actually look at it. And don't forget that teacher expertise, teacher gut feeling, teacher observation, all matters in that as well. So a lot of kids, I call it being over-therapized, and I don't know how you feel about this, Dr. Tay, but I feel like a lot of kids in my experience have been (laughs) over-therapized. They've been taught the answers to things and they can recite things. They do really well on these adaptive tests because that's what they do all day. They go to therapy. (laughs) So make sure that we account for that when we're looking at the evaluation data. Absolutely.
0: I would call it more along the lines of like masking, right? We're teaching them to mask their symptoms, which is a really big thing in the autism community of like, what does in- intervention look like right now? Are we just teaching kids to mask? So they hold it together. And this is important too. Do they hold yeah. it together all day long at school and then they're coming home and melting down? When you're in the IEP meeting, you need to be letting the team know this. But yeah. yeah, in writing, that's something I tell parents all the time. It's like, you can't just say in passing, right? You need to actually put it in writing so that they respond. Yeah. The other thing just real quick that comes to mind with this if you want to comment briefly. And is this idea too, that maybe a kid is in an advanced class and the suggestion is to drop them down versus giving them an IEP. And like, I'm like, absolutely not. Their their ability level is at that higher level class and we need to support them in that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, The law, unfortunately, when Andrew F., which is one of our most recent Supreme Court cases in special education, when it made it to the Supreme Court, we in this community were really hoping that we would change or get better law on the requirement. The law is actually not, even after Andrew F., that schools help children meet their full potential. So the law is that they advance from grade to grade or make appropriate progress in light of their, as it applies to educational benefit. Yeah. I mean, that's silly. If we're doing okay and we can access the information in an advanced class, and that is our aptitude, according to all this testing, then it doesn't make any sense to drop down into a regular class. We are going to have the same problems taking notes or participating in group work or, fill in the blank. So what you say is what are our specific problems? Okay. How is that going to be different in a regular class? They won't be able to answer. Seems even rhetorical. All right. So that's not the problem. The problem is not the, the content. The problem is all of our other social emotional things that are getting in the way of us being able to access it. So therefore what we need are accommodations and modifications in order to access that. Curriculum, and I think if you really want to get nitty gritty, I'd be careful about modifying the curriculum because then they're going to say, "Well, it's actually that's very close to what we do in the regular class, but more accommodate." Do we need note takers? Do we need some supports for group work? That thing, okay, and that all falls oftentimes under the
0: more social emotional. Yes, I would think so. Yeah, okay, great. So this next question was from the Evolve Facebook community. So this is thinking. So what is more important, do you feel, learning like academic skills or the ability to be in school to learn coping skills, self-advocacy? Because basically what this parent was saying is that sometimes her son gets really overwhelmed in these like more stimulating environments. So is it more just the exposure that's important or do they need to try to get them in a setting where maybe there's less stimulation so they can
1: academically learn? I think the answer to this really depends on the child's profile and the family's values and the the child's goals, right? So I think you should conceptualize this in terms of your family's interests and values and probably as it relates to your child's future. If you want for your child to be able to be a, a corporate... A hot shot that has to go to busy dinners and golf at the country club and all of those like stereotypical corporate things, which praise be to the, the Jesus, the corporate world is changing and becoming more neurodiversity affirming. Then maybe we need to work on being in whole group settings and in loud settings and in busy settings that go at a rapid fire pace and are not super affirming without masking, right? But maybe we need to try to work on accessing those environments. The idea there's no special education room in the in the real world. But if and of course, then we need to work on like heavy duty academics. But at the same time, if your goals, depending on how autism affects your child, and and remember autism can affect people so incredibly differently, beautifully differently. If your goals are that your child is not going to, to be in an environment like that, but it's going to be in an environment with far less demand. And if a very busy general education classroom is completely overstimulating and making your child anxious, well, your child's not going to learn when they are in this heightened state of anxiety. And so sometimes it is appropriate to remove the child from that gen ed classroom and to put the child in a more specialized setting in order to access learning. Now, what I will say is the learning there does not have to be any less significant than the learning that the gen ed population is getting so so many districts say, okay now we're going to a self-contained room or a specialized unit like the autism unit and you do laundry well it, that it doesn't mean that you can't have physics four in that setting it just means you can't access that setting with reasonable accommodations and modifications yeah so we can uniquely tailor setting educational content curriculum delivery methods to the child that's What we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, I love that, and it's about advocating for your child, knowing that this is possible. And this is where, like,
0: sometimes you do have to hire an advocate or a special education attorney, and all of that to be able to fully be able to access what your child's rights are. I will say, and this actually leads to the next question: is the question was what are the best public schools in states? that can support my highly functional autistic child. So basically what states seem to be best. And before I let you jump in, I I mean, we talked about this before. It's like, it's so variable. And I have seen, and I'm sure you've seen the gamut of like, some schools are like above and beyond and they will do anything and everything. And then other schools are... It's going to be like pulling teeth to get an IEP and to get certain accommodations. There's just so much variability, but I'll let you dive into to this question.
1: No, I don't really have a list of states or even a list of districts. Like I oftentimes get calls from disability organizations saying, Hey, somebody's moving into the greater Cincinnati area. What district would you recommend? And that's really hard for me. But what I do do is I have conversations with, with parents about. Questions that they should be asking, research they should be doing. So, the difference between a big district and a little independent district is significant. The difference between public and private is significant. And then, like, what I usually try to do is to ask questions that lead parents to their values and their interests. Like, do you know most of the time, parents know if they think their child's going to do better in a general education classroom? 100% of the time or with pull-out services or with co-taught classes or with a self-contained classroom, a unit, an autism unit, if they think their child needs alternate placement to someplace else. So think about the least restrictive environment for your child and then ask the school what their feelings or, or what their policies and ideas are about least restrictive environment. And don't just ask that general question because you're going to get like, well, we follow the law, but then ask like a lot of questions, right? Then I think also you want to ask about teacher caseload, the actual curricula that they use. Like my child uses touch points math. Do you have touch math in your district? My child has done really well with this particular Maybe it's a PBIS, the positive behavior intervention that your school uses. So do you have leader in me or do you have mission statements? My child's always done well with that. Ask those really specific questions, but first stop and think, what does an ideal school look like to me? And then how can I ask questions to get to this? So I oftentimes equate it. We're doing college exploration with my child right now. And we've sat down and he had a thousand questions about what's important in a school, what's important in your swim team, because he wants to swim, what's important, and then what questions can we ask to see if we can get some answers.
0: Yeah. If he wants to explore Michigan at all, I'd be happy to chat with him. They have an excellent swim team. They I sure do. I was I was actually a college athlete there. So Oh, cool. What sport did you do? Rowing. Oh, oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's so cool. Yeah. I love that though. Yeah. I think it's figuring out what's important to you and not being afraid to drill down and ask those questions. I think it's just so hard to, yeah, give this blanket statement. And I even think we in the Pittsburgh region, like I'll hear things from parents about being like, well, this is a great school district. And sometimes the great school districts don't always have great Special education supports
1: too. It really, really varies. Totally. And school to school, it can vary. Big school, little school, does the school have open enrollment? Does it not? And one other thing I meant to say, Dr. Tay, is you also have to think if your child is on Medicaid, if your state has a good Medicaid waiver system and your child is on Medicaid, think about going elsewhere. So we think about that with retirement a lot and unfortunately it's easy honestly because you just look at red state blue state <laughs> to see if the medicaid system is good and for the most part that can be pretty helpful but like we're in Kentucky we have awesome medicaid waiver services oddly so to go to Texas where the waiting lists are and I don't practice in Texas but i think years literally years long and to think well how would we access a group home there that's like a a non sequitur for us. So I think also looking at other services besides school is important.
0: Yeah. And if you didn't listen to the previous episode, Ashley has a special needs son herself. How old is he now? My Jack, he is 13. He just started his first day of seventh grade. Oh, how fun. How fun. So she has the expertise with this being her career, but also... lived experience as a parent having to educate for her son's educational rights as well so yeah and I was a teacher oh yeah I forgot that (laughs) yes yeah so she's got it all which is why I was like she's we got to bring her back so I love that point about Medicaid and I think some of this too could potentially it's interesting I know for early intervention there's certain states that are great but I think at the school district level that it, it just is so much more variable. So that makes sense. Okay, so the next question was from Facebook. How often should a child be evaluated after their initial assessment of autism? So I was thinking you can answer on the educational side and I'll touch base on the clinical side. Real quick, just a brief interruption because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent-affirming care or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps.
1: Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the the law says that a child must be evaluated every three years. We call it a triennial evaluation. So every three years. Now there are reasons to do like record reviews if you think something's pretty stable or you think it doesn't necessarily impact the child and you don't need to relook at something. And there are also reasons to evaluate either more often than that, or to evaluate additional or different areas of development need or functioning, right? So generally speaking, I would say if you see a need or some additional change in functioning, it's a good idea to get that evaluation data. So your evaluation data is going to be objective. It's going to be research-based. It's going to be standardized and you're going to get good information there, But don't forget to also look at curricular assessments, teacher data, your progress monitoring data on your IEP, any data that you take at home, of course your outside evaluations. I am a humongous proponent in actually utilizing the evaluation data, which is why I answered the first question about eligibility the way I did. So taking that objective information, plus your subjective feelings about your child and the school staff's subjective feelings and utilizing that to develop really good goals and really good supports in the IEP. So I always say the key to special education is identifying the needs and then capitalizing on the child's strengths to really encompass the, the, the needs altogether. So yeah, I mean, the answer is as is, is often as you need to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But by law, your child should be evaluated at school every three years under their IEP On the clinical diagnosis side, I actually don't often recommend re-evaluation unless you're suspecting that there could be an additional diagnosis. For example, if your child got diagnosed with autism when they were really young, ADHD wasn't part of that conceptualization. And so then if you're asking yourself, wait, do they also have ADHD? This is where that can be helpful. Or Maybe your child, as they move into their high school years, are starting to be a lot more anxious or you're concerned about depression. That's the time to work with an outside therapist. You might not even need to do a full retest, but at at least assessing their mental health. But I don't often see a need because autism is a lifelong disorder. And the way that it's written in the DSM-5, which is what we used to diagnose, there is a by history clause. So even if your child isn't sh- demonstrating all the traits and symptoms that are needed to meet criteria right now, if they did at one point, they still have that diagnosis. So there's not often a reason to redo a clinical diagnosis unless if you wanted something like, to see where their IQ was, something like that, but school also can do that. So I would actually recommend leveraging the school system, getting your testing done there, unless you're looking at an additional clinical diagnosis, like ADHD, anxiety, OCD,
1: depression. Agreed. And we can just learn so much from that cognitive and academic testing, right So we can learn so much about learning profile and how a child functions and like I read one yesterday where the child's like verbal comprehension was just off the charts incredible and their working memory was like slightly below average. And so I said to the parents do does your child like come home and rewrite their notes and do flashcards and like really try to like hammer stuff into their short-term memory And they were like no. and I said, well, there's your problem because they understand everything. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I got it. This is so typical of boys with ADHD, and a lot of kids with autism and ADHD that are boys and pubescent. Yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. And then the test comes and they don't got it. Right. Exactly. And you're like, because you heard it and you understood it. And then your working memory didn't retain it. So yeah. we need to work on things to improve your working memory, or at least to retain that specific information. So skills and strategies all come from that. And it's like, we actually have to do something with that information. Totally. And one thing to keep
0: in mind, just one little tangent is academic testing. Insurance usually will not pay for academic testing because they say it's not part of the medical and clinical need. And so this, you're going to your school district, or you can choose to pay out of pocket for it, but just know standardly, most insurance companies will reject
1: any sort of academic testing. Yeah. So. And at public school, it's free. Yes, exactly. exactly. So sometimes they say, do me a solid. I know this kid's not going to qualify for an IEP, but do me a solid. We pay tax dollars and evaluate them. Please. Ooh, I love that. Okay. <laughs> awesome.
0: How do you measure progress? My son has changed so much in so many different ways how can there be an end goal? Is it something meaningful to us as a family? I dread the question of how he's doing in regards to a professional. So this was asked in the Evolve group. So I think it's this concept of like, how do we measure progress? And I will just comment on this real quick. I feel like what can happen is sometimes when we're looking at progress and educational needs, it can feel like your child is not making progress because it's so deficits focused. And I think there's being a shift currently of like, how do we write more neurodiversity affirming goals?
1: It's kind of like a puppy, right? We live with them and we don't see how big they're getting. We don't see how they're progressing. So one of the things that I do is I really, when I work with my child, I take progress monitoring on his IEP goals and on goals that I have on at least a weekly basis. And I actually videotape our work and then they go, they're saved by date and they go in a little Dropbox file according to the goal. And that way, A, I can like cut clips of the videos in case I need to show school a concern or a thought or an idea. But also I can go back and be like, how did this look at this time last year? And I can see it because we're humans. We just can't see that in our memories. So that's one thing to help our souls. So when they're little, it's super easy because you get all those developmental profiles and they get evaluated or like curricularly assessed more often in early intervention. And so they'll say like, this is the next skill. Right. And then you're like, OK, we're moving up the ladder. Like our visual memory is improving or or our math calculation is improving. We've gone from addition to subtraction to multiplication and division or whatever. But And then in school, you can also do that with the, the state criteria, the state guidelines. So the curriculum, right? You can go on New Jersey State Department of Ed, and you can look to see what the curriculum is for each individual grade level, each individual area of Academics, and you can watch progress that way. Now, as it applies to, the, and you can get those for behavioral, speech, sensory, all of those things through the evaluations. But in a more like, I think to answer your question more broadly, again, you've got to contextualize it and what's important to you. So there are online. I used to be on the board of the Down Syndrome Association of Greater Cincinnati. We have one there. I know there's a million online that you can find that do like evaluations or progress monitoring charts for individuals with developmental disabilities, where you can look at like, where are we right now on dressing, on hygiene, on all areas of social, emotional interaction, like interpersonal interaction on our expressive language on expressing one's and needs, it can be as basic or as broad as you want it to be. And I actually recommend to my adult clients that they do that with their caregivers at least annually so that we can really look for regression and progress. And we can look to see what strategies are working, what skills we need to develop, and we do that in the context of those five areas of adult life. So what are our goals for, for medical advocacy? Are we going to be our own guardian? What decisions are we going to have to make? What skills do we need in order to make those decisions, advocate for ourselves, communicate their decisions? And then how are we doing on those? And to look at that at least annually as part of that supported decision-making plan, or if you have guardianship, is like a guardian team meeting with the with the person that has autism in this case. Okay. So again, it's like looking at that future plan, looking at the transition goals and the adulthood goals, even for kindergartners, like the time to think about adulthood is now. So that's a big intimidating answer. And I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, but I think if anyone listening to this episode or the live right now it is when you're making these decisions about your children's educational needs and IEPs and all of that you should be thinking about the future and just knowing that the IEP can cover it so yeah. so this was more a comment on Facebook as we're live but it i I'm going to throw it in real quick so this parent said the question of funding is important and i think this was in regard regards to selecting different districts for placement do you find in your work that like funding can vary
1: dramatically vary school to school yes because a lot of schools their funding is based on their performance and so the higher performing schools get less money which is counterintuitive, but they think they need to put more money where districts are not doing well. But but also stereotypically those higher performing schools also have foundations that can supplement their budgets. And so, and they might have like tax levies and that stuff. So I have never done any research on the impact of funding and special education progress. You could probably, I mean, schools, they have to report this the 2004, I think, uh, revision of IDEA required a lot more publication of data on special education progress. So you could probably research that and probably somebody has. But in my experience, a lot of special education progress is a people problem. It depends on your special education director, your district's initiatives, the actual curricula that they choose, the individualization of the education. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily like, oh, we don't have the money to buy that curriculum. I think it's really like ideal based. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And I feel like what one go-to, I think one sign of this is is the school district willing to collaborate with you and view you as an expert on your child's team? I think that's yeah. often a great indicator because then they yeah. really value your, your report. I have a whole business based on that. So, yes, she does. So, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> we will definitely link her website. It's ashleybarlowco.com, right? Yes, yes. Okay. We will link it in the show notes for sure. But yes, lots of advocacy and all of that. She has so many wonderful resources. Okay. So three questions left. Let's see if we can power through these. So this is for younger kids. This came from the Evolve Facebook group. This parent happens to have like toddler pre preschool age, but the question was, what are your thoughts on half day of school? So like doing school in the morning and then therapy in the afternoon, is it better to commit to one thing or can it be beneficial to do both?
1: You know, I think it's always a weighing of the interests. So I am a big proponent of public school, obviously because of special education, but for a million other reasons as well. I'm a big proponent of school, period, especially for kids that have social, emotional deficits and particularly students with autism. I think that you can learn so much by simply being with other humans. But at the same time, it's also very important to not only get those skills that you need through some therapy clinic or from outpatient therapies and from various other professionals. So it's really a weighing of the interest. Like, what do we want to prioritize right now? How can we meet the needs for each student that they particularly need? I think I would defer more towards school in an ideal situation, but certainly there are reasons to either back off of school or to really go intense into a therapy or or a clinic in order to address particular needs with the goal of of reintegrating into school full-time.
0: Yeah. And as a clinician, I also would lead towards school as well, that the more that your child can be in that school setting, I think there's a little bit of a pressure right now that it's like more, more, more in terms of therapy. And really what we need to focus on is high quality delivery of those services. I think that goes a lot longer, but I also think this is where communicating with the school, what is your child working on in therapy, right? Can they also support it? Which ends up being like hours of exposure that they're getting to practice these skills. I think it's really important. And I will say, even as a clinician, as much as I can, I avoid pulling kids out of school to see them. The only exception to this, I would say, is if you're having to have a short stint of intensive-based therapy. Yeah. For example, if your child, like, for example, has selective mutism, and we have an episode actually coming up on this, sometimes it's like, you might need to prioritize therapy so that they can fully engage in the school process but it's short term. So.
1: Or like their anxiety is so pervasive that they can't access school. You're getting an incredible school refusal. They need an out. They need, they need to address the anxiety in order to be able to access the school. Well then of course that's appropriate.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But I agree with you. There's so many benefits of children being in school and Feeling confident in ed- communicating with your child's IEP team that they're getting what they need in school yeah, is yeah. important. Okay. Should I try to put my son in the same school as his friend? We currently right. spend regular time without of school.
1: Yes, and no. I actually had this question in my practice the other day. I mean, I, like, is there a reason to request a special friend? Sure. There could be, again, like incredible social anxiety or a bullying situation or whatever. Like, you can't answer anything completely like, yes or no. So I can foresee like a really extenuating circumstance where that might be appropriate, but in large part, again, like humans are humans. We have to learn how to interact with new humans while also maintaining the relationships that are super familiar to us. And so I can foresee that there might be a reason, but Generally speaking, no, I think it's absolutely appropriate to be in classes and to make new friends. Yeah.
0: And in the Facebook community, I responded and basically said, I think that the first decision should be what is the best educational setting for your child. Yeah. I think that kind of trumps this. So.
1: Yeah, definitely over the socialization, but even like, oh, you know, can I request certain kids be in my class or not be in my kid's class? I mean, with, with very many exceptions, I think no. Like we can't request who our coworkers are. We can't request who belongs to our gym or our community park or our soccer team. So, you know, school should mimic that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then the last question that I have, unless you think I'm forgetting something, basically signs that homeschooling might be a better fit or weighing on the pros and cons of school environment as a place for learning for autistic kids. And how to factor in mental health of the child when deciding public schooling is the right fit. I will say I did an entire episode 51 where I answered this, but I'd love
1: to get your insights as we wrap up this episode. Oh, I would love to hear I'm gonna listen to that podcast. Um I think it's the same answer as going to an ABA or a therapy clinic at half day, right? Like I just think there's so many benefits to public school. There's so many benefits to being educated with your child or with other children in the school environment under idea. There are reasons to homeschool, as I mentioned the anxiety and social emotional benefit. That's a, a humongous reason why a child might not be able to access school on a full-time basis or at all. But the one thing is If you, I mean, frankly, in my office, I most of the time give people like a 15 minute lecture if they say, I think I'm just going to homeschool them. But the key components to don't do that is who's going to, who's going to deliver quality education and quality therapeutic like services. And how are you going to know that? Who's going to do all that research? Schools have, schools spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars doing that research continuously and then providing professionals to do it. Also, where are you going to get extracurriculars and social interaction? So where's your child gonna learn how to play the piano or learn how to line up in a line when somebody says to line up in a line, to wash their hands, to do all of those things? Who's gonna work on those transition skills? When you think about all the things that happen in a school just in the first hour, how are you going to mimic that and, and learn those same skills? And a homeschool environment. So I think there's benefits to homeschool, but gosh, it would be like really, really, really hard to do it as well as the school system does. That makes sense. Okay, last thing. Was there something that you wanted to mention? It says, should you meet with your child's teacher before school starts or let them meet your child first or meet later? I was just gonna say communicate now, communicate daily, communicate monthly, depending on the age of the child. I actually care so much about communication. Missed attorneys say document, document, document. And I say communicate, communicate, communicate. So do online profiles, take data, sit down and think about every doctor's and therapy appointment that you've had over this. I have a communication bundle on my website because I feel so passionately about how often and how much you should communicate. That The parting words I have is that the word parent, is in the the law idea over four hundred times. Congress does tons of research before they institute a law, and this research that they did before they implemented IDEA in the seventies said that parent involvement was a key to a child's success. And so, please don't feel like you are being a burden. Please feel like you are empowering the team to collaborate with you and with your child. Um, if you communicate often and effectively. Love it. I
0: love it. That's such a perfect end. And I couldn't agree more about communicate now. Be proactive in this. Don't wait until there's an issue. Ashley, thank you so much for being here today, answering all these questions. This was wonderful. Y'all, that is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tate. I will see you back soon. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects 1 in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide, so I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.